My name is Krista Fruhoff. I am a PhD candidate. My work deals with polymers in a variety of applications, such as biomedical, um, I guess you could think of it as environmental friendly, and also um, public health issues. Um, and I hope that my work really kind of is able to reach a variety of different facets of our lives, um, not just in the lab, but also for people out there doing their daily things. So thank you for tuning in, and this is my grad life. folks. Welcome to the This Grad Life podcast. Here we chat with researchers about their work and the inner turmoil that often comes along with living life on the leading edge. I am your host, Dr. Ted Yu. If you can't get enough of science and or dread, head down to our official website, www.thisgradlife.com. There you can read more about this episode's guest. Finally, if you find value in this podcast, you can also find links to support us. With me today is... Krista Fruhoff. We know each other. We're friends because we work on the Lowdown on Science. It's a common running theme. You yeah. interview who you know, I guess. All yeah. of the previous people have been Lowdown on Science. <laughs> uh, she is from the Department of Chemistry here at UCI. Uh, welcome, Krista. Thank you for having me. This is really exciting for me, actually. I'm glad you think so. Yeah, I'm honored so to be here. could you start off by telling us what is a polymer uh, and what is it exactly that you study? Yeah, I get that question a lot. Um, obviously when people ask you, like, what do you do? Um, and then you have to explain, I'm a chemist. And they're like, oh, what, what, what do you do? What kind of chemistry? And then you're like, uh, organic polymers. And they're like, oh. And it's the O of like, I don't know what that means. And so I guess the best way to describe a polymer is there's like the technical term of like, oh, it's a very long molecule with repeating units. Um, that's kind of confusing, right? So I guess the best examples would be our DNA. Um, even some of the synthetic clothing we wear, um, sugar is a polymer. Um, so I guess the best way to describe polymer is the things in the plastics that you use every day in your life. Um, so those are commercial plastics and commercial polymers. Um, but I guess the polymers I work with are slightly different. So... You know, polymers, it's such a broad field, it's kind of hard to tack it down. Um, but I guess what I've been doing recently is, so my first project was trying to make these hydrogel polymers. So hydrogel is just something that soaks up a lot of water. Um, kind of thing like jello or gelatin, like those are also things. Or like those little bead things they put in like plants and stuff, like soak oh, up water and grow yeah, really yeah. big. Those are also like hydrogels polymers. Um, and so that so one was... Silica packets, new electronics, maybe? Is that considered? Yeah. Well, yeah. 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 There's, like, silica-based polymers and stuff. I mean, it, it, then it like, gets more into, like, materials, which is, like... I guess that's the best way to describe it for people, if they want, to like, a real, like, living explanation of it. Yeah. And so I've been making really teeny tiny ones, nanoparticles, um... And so we've been trying to use them for drug delivery. Um, so I recently published my paper this year. On oh, that. congratulations. Yeah, thank you. It was, <laughs> I was like, thank goodness we did it. Um, yeah. 
So for those of you outside of academia, it's, you know, a big deal when you finally get to publish your work and like you're the first author, because that means you did the writing, you did most of the experimental work, you know, it's, it's really just gratifying to finally have someone be like, this is good enough to publish and like, yeah, now other people can read it and see what I've been, you know, crying and bleeding and sweating over for <laughs> hours on end. Sometimes um, literal bleeding. Yes, I know correct. I had to literally bleed before for my work. Ah, yes, it can happen. Yeah. Either intentionally or unintentionally. <laughs> Be careful with needles, friends. They are sharp. Um, but another project uh, that I've been working on, separate really from my group, because they do a lot more of nanoparticles for antivenom, is I've been working with this polymer. It's a polymer of intrinsic microporosity. Um, that's a big, big phrase. And basically it's just this polymer that has really, really small holes in it. And so um, we've used it to separate different molecules that look identical to each other, but are mere images of each other. Um, I think I talked about that, the bruise and brains thing. Yeah. Yes. Um, So that's what's been used for recently in the past, but I'm trying to use it for water purification. So virus particles are much smaller than bacteria. So virus particles are 10, around 10 nanometers. Um, bacteria are around, like, can be up to, like, 200 nanometers. Um, and so the pore size, or, like, the little holes, the size of those in the, I'll call them PIMs, polymer of intrinsic microporosity, that's a little bit easier. Um, the PIM, it's around 2 to 4 nanometers, except they don't like water. Um, so obviously, if you're trying to use it for water purification, you gotta figure a way around that. Um, so it's gotta interact with the water. Yeah. Purify the water. Yes. Right. Yeah, I can't just sit on top of the water. Um, so I've been working on that. I think I'm making good headway, thankfully. But actually, there's a, another project that I've been working on, um, which That's isn't normal. Like, yeah, grad students don't normally have this many projects at once. I'll just let, throw that out there. Usually, have like one or two, maybe. Um, but another one I have that I'm actually a little bit more excited about is an idea I came up with which is a way to make a photodegradable plastic to be used in commercial applications. So, you know, I was reading, and this was for, like, my advancement to candidacy exam, which is a big exam that everyone has to take to become a PhD candidate, because otherwise you're just a PhD student. Right, that's the test that tells you, hey, I'm actually doing actual work. Uh, yes. You guys can let me stay, please. I'm good enough to get that PhD, because <laughs> I don't have imposter syndrome already. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But, um, so I found this molecule that is, like, a little bit bio-based, and, um, I can make it in the lab, and so if you shine light on it, it should break into two molecules. And so my idea was to put that in a polymer, so that I'd have, like, I'd have, I'd grow the other little units off of it, um, so this polymer, which is, you know, photosensitive, would be in the middle, and then we'd grow something from that. Um, so I've been working on this thing called polyhomologation. Um, that's a term that was coined in our lab um, by my boss, um, Ken Shea. He's really cool. He's really nice. Nice old man. Um, so basically, you do a bunch of stuff, and then you're growing it one carbon at a time. So most of the polyethylene that we use, those are like the plastic bags that people get, like the really thin ones. Um, those are grown like two carbons at a time, but this is different in that it's one carbon at a time and you get really nice properties and it's cool. You get very 
And when you make polymers, you want a narrow molecular weight distribution because you can imagine if you had a bunch of different weights to all of your lengths and chains of polymers, it would just kind of be a mess. So all of the commercial plastics we use have like those very similar narrow molecular weight distributions because otherwise you don't get the good mechanical properties that we see with a lot of our materials today. Hmm. So could you explain that last part bit a little bit more? So the polymers, you want them to be kind of uniform. Is that the idea? Yeah. Is that what you're talking about there? Yeah, I guess the best way to describe that, because um, it can be a little technical, um, is let's say you, like our DNA, right? All of our DNA is hopefully like around the same length, if that makes sense. And like as it gets shorter and stuff, bad things happen. There's a set length to DNA. And it exactly. Be, okay. Yeah. So I think that might be the best way to explain it. But you can also imagine um, for like structural integrity for things, if you have a mixture of lengths of your like noodles, let's just call the polymers noodles, right? So let's say you have a mixture of lengths of your noodles. Your noodles won't make really good, you know, like let's say you want to squish all your noodles together. Um, Because that's basically what happens to polymer chains is they all squish together. Um, And that kind of gives your materials like that nice, like, oh, this is like tough or this is strong or like, but if they don't, then you can imagine it'll crack more easily. So it becomes more brittle. Um, Yeah. So the the uniformness of these the noodles should be around the same length. Yes. Because I'm imagining trying to eat noodles of like weird lengths. You it's like un- cut half of them in half. And it's really weird. unpleasant, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Aside from the fact that they don't play together well, do they have different properties when they're different lengths? They can. That's an interesting question. Yeah. Um, so if they have different lengths, you'll definitely get different physical properties. Um so that's how we usually characterize polymers for applications is what are their physical properties? Like, do they melt at lower temperatures? Do they melt at high temperatures? Like, can I use this for like outdoor use? Like, can this be used in like a commercial or industrial setting? Um, but it really just depends on what application you want, which is the nice thing about polymers is you can try and control for these things based on molecular weight, which is the size and the length of the noodle. Or you can also, you know, change the chemical properties of them. And that really affects some of that as well, because sometimes they'll make these little areas, which we call them crystalline. So they make little, like, crystal areas inside. Crystal in this case just meaning they have a regular structure to them. They arrange themselves in a particular way. Yeah, so the polymers can kind of either stack or arrange themselves around each other in such a way or maybe they don't and then we call it amorphous or like there's no shape like there's just kind of like a blob yeah but they can still be strong so it's just it just depends on really what you're trying to do i see and one of the things you do modulate is the mass the the molecular weight yes so going back to a little something you said earlier uh like what's the significance of growing these one atom at a time because you said it's normally done by like two or so right yes so what is the significance of that then so that's much harder um i think if you i mean right now right we make polyethylene 
on like we make billions and tons of polyethylene. I think it's like the most produced of all the plastics. There's polyethylene, then probably propylene. So when you look at like the bags and stuff, it says like PPE or PPP. It's like polypropylene, like you know things like that. All right, HDPE, high density polyethylene. Um, so that's like from two carbons at a time they're growing it. Um, so those industrial processes are interesting, is because. Ethylene is a gas, um, so you can imagine that would require that would require um, harder conditions, maybe. Um, yeah, because the shopping bags we see today are not—they're not gas. Correct. <laughs> they turn from things. gas into a solid. It's amazing. Um, but I think growing at one carbon at a time gives you a little bit more control over what you're putting into your polymer. Um, you can imagine. Um, so people are really into these things called co-block polymers. So that just means, you know, you'll have one section that's made of like one poly- polymer one, right? Or and like molecule one. And then you introduce a set section that's maybe molecule B. And then you can reintroduce molecule A. Um, but it's still one giant polymer. It's still one giant polymer. But people do this now. Already through different means, um, there are plenty of labs that specialize in that. But I think the polyhomologation or growing at one carbon at a time is just so interesting because it's just so different from what most of these polymers, like most of the chemistry, is done to do. Or I guess the chemistry that's done now to make certain polymers. Um, yeah. And I think it... So then you'd make polymethylene which has similar properties to polyethylene. You know, you wouldn't really be able to tell them apart unless, you know, you really, like, did all the characteristic, you know, chemical polymer characterization stuff. It's like mass spec on it. You would, like, be able to see in certain mass spec techniques, but... What's methylene and what's ethylene? Methylene is one carbon, so methylene is just CH4, and then... Ethylene is C2. Yes. Yeah, so carbon, I guess. Yeah. That, that does make sense. Yeah. Um, if you're cutting down the number of atoms that you could use, yeah. something smaller. Uh, that, I guess that does make, give you double the amount of control over your polymer than you had before. Is that a Yeah. Statement? And you can get like really, really nice narrow molecular weight distributions, which means they're all, all of my noodles are the same length. So when I'm making my noodles, I'm cutting them so they're all. About the same. And that, that that's going to make the polymer overall behave a lot better. Yeah. It's a very um, attractive characteristic. So when you're reading these papers about polymers, you always want to see, like, oh, like, how, like, good did they do in this, you know, molecular weight distribution? Or, like, are all their noodles the same length? And if they are, then it's good. And you're like, ah, oh, that's a good way to do it. And if it's not, you're like, hmm, 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 maybe not. I don't want to do that. You talked about characterizing polymers. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? It's like you're looking into their lives. <laughs> um, I was imagining uh, you were writing backstories for them. I Maybe sometimes I do. Like know. this polymer wanted to be a ramen noodle or something. Yeah. And it, and it, maybe it was in its previous life, so it's very happy to be yeah. a polymer or something. And then this one was like, I used to be soba, and now I'm, <laughs> and now I'm here. Um. Yeah, so characterizing, that's a lot of 
you know, I think what we chemists do, right? We, we make things, we do things, and then we have to investigate what we did, how it looks, right? But then you're trying to look at things on a very small atomic molecular scale, which I think blows my mind. And that's crazy to me. And I really think it's interesting. But yeah, to characterize it, you'll do things like you'll basically break apart the noodles you just made to like see what the different segments are made of or by their molecular weight or like maybe their charge or like what's attached to them. Or you can use like really uh, fancy other techniques with lasers and you shoot lasers at them and then you can figure out like, oh, like this is how much this noodle weighs and stuff like that, which is crazy because right, like you can't even see the individual noodles unless you use really, really, really strong microscopes. Which are also really cool and hard to use, in my opinion, Ugh. since I don't do a lot of that. So kudos to the people that do a lot of the microscopy. So you're mostly making these things. Yeah, so I'm mostly synthesizing them and then using other characterization methods to look at them and analyze them. So that's more like analytical chemistry, I guess you could call it. Is that typically almost considered two different fields of chemistry? People that do, are there people that make this stuff full-time and then people full-time figure out what was made? And then I imagine a researcher in your case, you're probably going to do a lot of both. Oh, yeah. I think if you went to maybe like industry or a company, you know, or even I think maybe a national lab, they definitely have technicians that will do the analytical portion I think. So obviously, you know, as a lowly grad student, you know, we don't have that kind of money in academia. So yeah, you do do a lot of both. So you learn about, you know, the techniques. Um, and you do get a lot of the hands-on experience of like, I made this, now I'm going to go over to this instrument or this machine and I'm going to work it. And it's going to spit out some stuff and I'm going to look at it and I'm going to have to explain this to my boss and then make sure it makes sense. And I'm going to put a pretty picture of it in my paper so that when it's published, everyone can see that I wasn't making up my data. So that you said this was your third project. Yes. I've had other projects, though, which I didn't feel like were that. I don't know. It was just a lot of like, hey, Chris, do you want to do this? You want to do this? You want to do that? And I felt like, yeah, I want to do all these things, you know. But then I like realized, wow, this is a loss and I'm not necessarily interested in every single thing. So I've gotten to like parse out, I think, more of like what I like and what I want to do. Gotcha. How how did that happen in the first place? Like multiple projects? Because she's right. You don't usually get like a billion projects to work on during your PhD, you have like, oh, here's your thing. Go figure it out. You're not just given a bunch of stuff. Yeah, I think part of it is I'm the last graduate student in my lab. So my advisor is retiring. Or I guess he is. He's technically emeritus now. So um, there will be no more graduate students in the lab and he'll just have postdoctoral researchers and maybe even visiting scientists from other countries who probably have their own funding because we do that now. But yeah, no more, no more students. So I think 
it's time to hang up the lab coat. It's time, yeah. But I think it's hard for him, right? Because he still has so many ideas. He's no less active, you know? That's the crazy thing. He's still really into science, which is nice. But also, you know, it's like, Krista, you are willing and able, and you seem excited to do it, so you'll do it, right? And I'm like, okay, yes. It's breaking my soul, but I will, because <laughs> you told me to do it. So it's it's a journey of like learning to push back and learning when to just listen. I think it's partially my personality of like, yeah, I'll do it. I want to try it. And then trying and being like, wait. Because you're the one in the lab, right, as the student and the advisor comes up with the ideas and they are kind of removed from the practicality of lab work at that point. So they might not necessarily fully understand anymore you know, how long it takes, the amount of energy, because they could be coming up with ideas in areas where they never did research at all, ever. So, like, my advisor, he did physical organic chemistry. So he was looking at, like, mechanisms of how reactions work. You know, he had never done polymer chemistry in his life, like, as his PhD work. Um, And now we're, like, venturing into, like, biological applications, and he's never taken a biology class. So... I mean, they obviously learn as they go and they learn things from what students do and that gives them like the anecdotal experience, but they're never the ones in the lab doing the physical work. Right. Smart enough to know what's going on, but since they're not, they're removed from the work, yeah, you you have no idea what it takes again. Okay. I get that. So it's easier for them to be like, go do all these things. And then you're like, okay, it's Friday and it's like six o'clock and I want to go home hungry but okay i can't say no because <laughs> you're still here were you always into polymers how did you so did this lab even do polymers first off yeah so i guess your first question was was i always into polymers the answer is no i actually in my undergraduate research experience was mostly doing synthetic organic chemistry and methodology um so this is very different. But I will say that our lab used to have a mixture of like making small molecules, natural products, methodology. Um, Some of it was polymers. And I think over the years, the lab has kind of moved into more polymer material research. But I will say we are polymer chemists and we're not material scientists because we really do all the chemistry. We really think deeply about it. We do all the chemistry ourselves. Um, And so when I first looked at the lab website, I'm sure it was outdated. And I was like, wow, they do (laughs) Um, synthesis and stuff. And I was like, I really like that. I like working with my hands. I like making molecules. I think it's really interesting. Um, And then when I sat down with him, he was like, oh, we don't really do that anymore. But we do do this stuff. And he was showing me like the polymer, the hydrogel polymer nanoparticle research, um, mostly with antivenoms. And I was like, yeah, like, why not? Like, I guess I could get into that. And so I had to learn a lot about polymers because I'd never taken a polymer chemistry class in my life. And I also was not a chemist major. I was, uh, I got my bachelor's in physiology. So it was a very, I think I had a very different experience going into grad school and getting 
you know, all of that information stuffed into my brain the first year. And I'm still learning stuff, and I think it's been one of the most exciting and challenging things I've done. So how, how did that work out then in the first place? Physiology, uh, did you do some sort of work beforehand where you were like messing around with chemicals? Is that then? Yeah. So it's weird, right? Most people who are like physiology majors would probably do work in a bio-centered lab or with a professor who, you know, is in some sort of bio department. Um, but I, after my first, no, after my second quarter of organic chemistry, I thought, it was fascinating and amazing, and I was absolutely turned on to the idea of organic chemistry. Um, and so I asked my professor at the time, you know, I was interested in research, and he said, okay. And then I spent like a year and a half or two maybe doing organic synthesis stuff, and it was awesome. And it was weird because all my friends who were also have getting bio-related degrees were doing biology research. Um, so I guess I just kind of fell into it. Well, in that case, I'm glad that worked out. Me too, yeah. Found something and just kind of fell in love with it. Yeah, shout out to the MCP program that used to be at UCI, which is no longer a thing anymore. But that was like the gateway program so that you could like enter in through the medicinal chemistry and pharmacology program and then choose between like some bio pharmaceutical sciences or chemistry and i think everybody was mostly choosing chemistry and i think that's why they got rid of it to just do farm sci separately um because our chemistry department is great and you know like who wouldn't want to get a degree in you know a good department at a good school in something that they like doing there's a lot of good people. Uh, yeah. You know, quite a few weirdos whom I respect very deeply. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I think I know who you're talking about. Your, the paper that you were recently got published, uh, that one was about nanoparticles and something about snake venom. Could you tell, could you tell us about that? Yeah. So it was nanoparticles for drug delivery. So it's more for cancer therapies. Okay, it's gonna get really technical, and I'm gonna do my best to explain it really well, because even explaining it to other people in chemistry and stuff, they get kind of confused. This is my jam. I hope you guys can hear this. I'm cracking my knuckles. <laughs> He's cracking his knuckles. He's preparing. So, cancer sucks, as everyone knows. Um, and so tumors, they just grow and grow and grow like nobody's business. And obviously they need blood supply for the oxygen but what happens is they keep growing and growing and they're growing away from the blood you know supply and what happens is they have to rely on different forms of metabolism to sustain themselves so you know if you're near oxygen you could go through oxidative you know respiration also known as the Krebs cycle um that gives more ATP and more energy and stuff. But if you're growing away from that, then you have to go to, through, like, you know, anaerobic uh, metabolism. So glycolysis. So depending on where the cancer is, it hijacks different mechanisms to feed itself. Yeah, basically. And so 
And I'm by no means a cancer expert. That's my dad. But, you know, we all try. Um, And so glycolysis, you know, you're making stuff, you're making stuff. But then you can also make lactate. That can be, you know, you can take some of the products from glycolysis and make lactate. And so because pyruvate is a direct um, product formed from glycolysis, that's what you want to make is pyruvate. Pyruvate can be turned into lactate by an enzyme called lactate dehydrogenase. And I'll just call that LDH because lactate dehydrogenase is a long word and it's annoying to say. And I'll mess it up. <laughs> so LDH can convert pyruvate to lactate. And lactate can then be used for lactate fermentation. And I think fermentation, people can kind of understand, right, when you're making beer and wine and yogurt, right, these are all fermentation processes. And so they're using the lactate to make more energy. Um, And so they depend on lactate a lot. So they're making a lot of lactate. So LDH is turning pyruvate to lactate a lot. A lot, a lot, a lot. And even though people might know lactate from like, oh yeah, like you build up lactic acid in your muscles, which there's like a whole other, you could tell a whole other podcast about like that science and maybe some of the misconceptions of that. But in a normal human, you would have around two millimolar of lactate at most in your body. But in cancer cells, they can make upwards of five millimolar to 10 millimolar to even like 40 millimolar in like some cases. So these are very extreme levels and some of them are extreme cases, but it is a well-known phenomenon um, that some tumor cells do create much more lactate so that they can provide enough energy for their cells. Um, And so that's called the Warburg effect. Um, So it's been documented. It's been well studied. And so we saw that as an opportunity to make something more stimuli responsive or something more targeted to the cancer because some of the cancer therapies, you know, are not super specific and they just kind of kill healthy cells as well as bad cells and and you get those terrible side effects. Um, Cancer can also go through different mutations to make it immune basically to your therapies, which is really unfortunate. Um, But, you know, if you're focusing on a metabolic pathway, that might give you better control and might give you a better target to focus on. And so I made a polymer nanoparticle that had an inhibitor molecule incorporated into it. And that inhibitor molecule attaches to lactate dehydrogenase. And so the idea is if we can put the LDH into the polymer nanoparticle, these inhibitor molecules will bind at up to four of the binding sites on LDH, and that can act like a cross-linking mechanism. So the polymer nanoparticle can like shrink down a little bit. And then once it makes its way to the tumor environment, there's a lot of lactate. Lactate likes to bind to LDH as well, right? Because it's a reversible process from lactate to pyruvate, pyruvate to lactate. It should displace or get rid of or replace the inhibitor in the nanoparticle attached to LDH. And so those different attachment points are no longer there. And then you get an expansion of the nanoparticle, almost like a relaxation of the polymer chains because they're no longer being 
confined or tied to something. And so the goal of my project and what I was able to show and demonstrate, which you can read about in the paper, is that I made the inhibitor, put it in the nanoparticle. When we added LDH, the polymer shrank. The nanoparticle did get smaller. And then when we added lactate concentrations that you would see in tumor cells, it did grow. It did expand. Um, And so I tested it to make sure it was only responsive to lactate at those concentrations, and it was. And so it's a really nice, what we call proof of concept, of that this system is viable, and we could potentially use this as another cancer therapy, as a way to take some of those drugs that are maybe not as bioavailable because they don't necessarily solubilize well in the blood because they're more hydrophobic. Um, If you put that into the nanoparticle, it could be like a little carrier vessel or vehicle. And so once it gets to the cancer, it expands and you can then deliver that chemotherapeutic drug to that specific spot as opposed to just having it run willy-nilly around your body and your bloodstream. Gotcha. So these drugs have a shoot first, ask questions later kind of approach to cancer, right? So in order to prevent that, you have something that'll just put the drug where the tumor is. Yes. So it can just do its thing. Yes. loose cannon where the tumor is or it's going to be fine. Yeah. Say, okay. That's kind of cool. And this, the mechanism here is specifically the lactase, which builds up in these tumor cells. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. Huh. That little molecule, lactate. Yeah. Very interesting. It was. was. Yeah, it was. And that was in collaboration. So it wasn't our lab's idea. It was uh, Professor Su Wen Wong's in chemical engineering. She came up with that idea with Ed Nelson in the medical department, I believe, in biomedical engineering department at UCI. And so I was lucky to be able to, like, have their idea, like, come to fruition. I was working with um, one of Professor Wong's students, uh, Tael Kim, who's now working somewhere in the Bay. Doing biotech stuff. Things I don't understand. I don't understand bio either. It's okay. Could you walk us through kind of the day-to-day of your laboratory life? Sure. So, um, my day-to-day I don't think is very uh, telling of a normal graduate student because usually you'd have lab mates um, and it's usually just me. In our other, right, because he has in our, like, one postdoc and maybe our other one visitor and maybe our one other postdoc if she's not busy doing other stuff. But so I usually come into lab. Um, if it's a day where I've, you know, planned to do an experiment, I've probably already written everything out and I've already prepared all my materials and my glassware. So I just, like, hit the ground running. Hit the ra- ground running. <laughs> hit the ground running and I just start. Um... Because sometimes you can get into this slump of if you start sitting at your desk and you start returning emails and then you're just kind of sitting there and you start reading papers, you'll just never leave your desk. Ah, yes, the the, the trap of emails. Yes, and then you're like, wow, it's been three hours already. Where has the day gone? Um, So if I do have an experiment planned, I'll start doing that immediately, get it set up. You know, if there's downtime in between, I'll go to my desk, return emails, um... And since I'm in charge of a lot of the things for the lab now, like ordering, inventory, safety, there's a lot of stuff that I have to, managerial things that I might need to take care of. Um, also responding maybe to my advisor or to a collaborator emails. Um, 
editing scripts for the lowdown on science. Oh, right. Yes. <laughs> um, and I'm part of Iota Sigma Pi, ISP, so maybe I have random stuff for that I need to take care of. Was well, that a... It's a group, chemistry group. Yeah, so it's the Honor Society for Women in Chemistry. Yeah. So that's, yeah, that's been interesting. Um, yeah, but mostly it'll just, or I'm just going to read stuff, um, just look through the literature, maybe think about future experiments, and then return to my experiment that's running and work it up or do whatever I need to do. Maybe go characterize it, go do that. Maybe need instrument training on something else, go start another experiment somewhere else. So I try to do multiple things within the day, but that's on like really good productive days, which is not every single day because if it was, you know, like we'd all be dead because we'd be exhausted and we'd all get our PhDs really quickly. But, you know, what people don't tell you is like instruments break, (laughs) things, you know, chemicals you need aren't ordered, you need to like wait for that you need to do other stuff so um that's a day in the life of a graduate student is fixing things that happen (laughs) things you do to yourself on accident oh oh man that last one yep um oh oh boy (laughs) how would you say when you start your day how often does it go according to plan yeah so never um I've realized to be more realistic about what my plan is for the day. So I used to write like 10 things down. So I was like, I'm going to do this and then this and then that. And then I'll have time for this. And then with science and research, everything takes much longer than you think it will. Even if you're doing everything right, you know, something will pop up or something will happen or like, oh, this is taking longer. So inevitably everything gets shifted down the list, you know, the time scale. And they're like, oh, I'll do it tomorrow. Oh, I'll do it tomorrow. Um, so I've learned to be more realistic about what I'm going to do in the day um, and to really prepare and plan for it the day before. And as opposed to before, I would just be like, I'm going to do this today. And then I'd be doing it and I'd be like, wow, this is like not going well. And like I wasn't as prepared as I thought I was. Um, which leads to like frantic scrambling and like writing numbers down and getting your calculator out um, and realizing, oh, my classwork's not dry. <laughs> and then where's the, where's the flamethrower, you know, for lack of a better word, the blowtorch. Um, but uh, yeah, it's been, it's been a learning experience and that you start to realize not everything will go your way and you have to be prepared for that. And so you have to be more realistic about your daily goals and be okay with maybe not meeting all of your daily goals. And it doesn't mean you were not a good student and it doesn't mean you weren't productive because you still did things that day and you still learned things. Even if the experiments failed, you still learned something from those experiences. Then being the only grad school in the lab, I I met grad student in the lab. (laughs) I imagine there's not a lot of people you could turn to for like, hey, does this look reasonable? Does this, are there any like pitfalls? Yeah. So that's been really interesting because normally you'd have a lab mate who's somewhat familiar with your work that you can ask questions to. Unfortunately, I've ventured off into an area where no, we no longer have graduate students who work on those projects. They've all gone off to do better and bigger things. Um, so some of my time is actually spent helping other people in the lab maybe trying to do things that they want to do and so I've 
realized that if I need to figure something out immediately, like I really need to use my own resources um, and Google and the internet. Google is uh, yeah, it's my best friend in life. Google Scholar has uh, can be attributed to many PhDs in this day and age. Yeah, I swear. But I've been lucky because my PI is actually really involved in. He's really interested and he wants to know and he's really encouraging and he's really kind and nice and easy to talk to. And I know that's not the case for every advisor. So even though I am the solo grad student, I really do have to depend on myself. It's been nice to be able to have conversations about science with him. And he's never, ever made me feel badly about not knowing something or maybe not realizing something in the moment. He's always been really encouraging and just kind of like pushing me along to figure things out and just try things in the lab. That's really cool. I think that's kind of the proper way to do it, in my opinion, especially when we're at this level um, where, yeah, like you said, it's outside of your boss's field. It's outside of everyone else's field. Uh, like, how can you reasonably expect things to go well the first time? No, no, no. Yeah, that's exactly what he says. He's always like, what, you expected it to go well the first time? You try something. And I was like, yeah, why not? And then he laughs. And then I'm like, I know. I can dream. Yeah, I, yeah, I understand. Uh, reminded of a story uh, when I was a kid. Um, like, you know, they teach you they teach you all sorts of weird... How, they teach you how to do math in all sorts of weird ways, right? Uh, the they introduced the idea of estimation at around, like, first or second grade. Yeah. And it was like, oh, here's a math problem. It's like 10 plus 12 or something like that. Don't give me the answer. Give me what, the estimate of the answer. You look at it, it's like, give me the estimate of the answer. Now my, like, little tiny child brain, I was like, what the fuck does that mean? <laughs> I'm going to give you the answer. I did 22 and I worked it out. I was like, no, no. The teacher would say, like, I, I didn't want the answer. Try to estimate the answer. And then I was frustrated and I remember crying a lot. Yeah. Yeah. That's hard. Yeah. Because you want to get it right the first night. No, totally understand. Yeah. That's, that's where that comes from for, for me, at least. Yeah. And then you're like, wow, what does this say about me? And then you make it very personal. And it's really hard to separate, mm-hmm. like, your feelings about your competency. Yeah. <laughs> from never. What you're doing and the results. Never grown out of that. Nope. Has, have not yet. It's hard. I feel like that too still. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So, it seems like on top of all of your grad work, which you already have a lot of projects, you also took on a lot of other stuff. You were part of the honors, part of an honor society. Uh, you're also part of the lowdown on science. If you guys notice a trend here, uh, you interview who you know, right? It's a great way to get people onto your podcast. Yeah, to get it started. <laughs> Thank you very much, by the way. Well, thanks for um, having me. Could you tell us about all of that stuff, how you balance it? Yeah. And how you got into it as well. Yeah. Uh, like most things in my life, I fell into things. Um, so, ISP, it was more like I had a few friends. I think Vicky used to also be part of ISP. Um, but one of my friends, Megan, she was really involved in ISP, and then... Maybe last year or two years ago, she asked, like, hey, do you want to be on the board for ISP? And I was like, yeah, sure, why not? And so I sent them an email, and I, like, said, like, oh, I could be vice president because blah, blah, blah. And then they had the election, and then I was 
elected, and then I joined, and then I did stuff. It's not so bad. That's not, like, a huge time commitment. But I do, when I choose to do things, I choose things that I know I would want to put my time into. So I think maybe some people sign up for things because they think it's a CV or resume booster. Which, you know, you should be strategic and you should do things worth your time that would also warrant boosting, you know, your CV. But I think I've chosen things that I personally believed in. So doing lowdown on science, you know, I took the class, you know, someone was like, Krista would be good at it. And then they like offered me the spot to be a writer. I wrote for a year and then eventually they asked me to be managing editor. And that's been nice um, because I believe in science communication and I believe that people should trust scientists. And I think we should all try to be more logical, fact-based people, um, data-driven. So that's been a time commitment, but it's been rewarding and more than just like, oh, look, I did this and it looks good for me. Um I've learned a lot from that in terms of how to communicate with people, how to give constructive criticism, how to receive constructive criticism, um, you know, and in terms of like my lab responsibilities, I obviously I had to become the safety <laughs> officer, a safety representative. There's really no one else. So that's been a journey, but it's made like I've learned a lot from all of these experiences and, you know, doing them has taught me how to talk to people in many different ways and how to deal with many different people, which as my advisor always says is part of our education as graduate students that is sometimes overlooked. It's like, so what if you don't get along with that facilities manager? Like you still need to go talk to them and use that instrument and learn how to do it. And some of these other interactions with other graduate students and maybe other professionals in other fields, even graduate students in other fields has really opened my eyes up into how the possibilities that are out there for me, how to manage my time. And I think just growing as a graduate student over the years, you learned how to manage your time better. I did learn that a lot in undergrad um, because obviously organic synthesis takes time um, and I would have classes in between and I'd need to get stuff done between the classes or my mentor would leave or people would need to leave the lab. Obviously I couldn't take all day. And it's, I don't think it's necessarily like it, a light goes on one day. It's more like you just learn from your experience of like, that took a long time. I'm going to budget my time. Or like, you know, I have a planner. I know everyone uses their phones and stuff, but I like to write things out a lot. So I'm old fashioned that way. And so I write everything out, you know, and I make sure I can make time for things. So long story short, to budget my time. I try to take on things that I think are important and that I want to do. And if I do feel like maybe there's too much happening, I've learned to say no. Or I've learned to say, like, I'm sorry, I can't help you or I can't do that right now. Like, I have other things, other priorities that I need to address. Are there any particular lessons you've learned? So, depends on how deep and personal and emotional you want to get in the podcast and I'll leave that up to you. Because I can only crack my knuckles so many times. <laughs> <laughs> um, so a little thing about me is my mom actually passed away in my first year of grad school. Um, and that was really traumatic because it was not expected. 
it was actually like maybe the second day of classes and I got the phone call and I was in class and then I was like bawling my eyes out and everyone was like are you okay and I like couldn't speak because I was so sad and then I was like god I just met all these people and now they see me crying and it was weird and then I had to tell like the professor I was like my mom just died uh I can't go back to lab and he was like yeah of course and I was like oh okay they're like, take all the time you need. And I was like, okay, I will. And then I didn't take all the time I needed because it was, you know, people were like, oh, you can take time off. You can, like, it's fine. Like when I told my professors, so it was like the first quarter and I was already feeling overwhelmed before that because I was like, whoa, I think I'm out of my depth here. Like I didn't take all of these required chemistry classes. Like I'm already like behind in all these concepts. Like, will I be able to rise to the occasion of like being a chemistry PhD student? And then my mom died and I was like, well, fuck, like, this is bad. But then I was so panicked and worried and I did so paralyzed. I just kept going to classes and kept going to school. Not that I did well in my classes that first year, but, you know, no one blamed me. Um, so I pushed through it. How healthy that was, I don't know. Um, looking back, it might have been better to take time off. But it's very person dependent. So if you're struggling, it's okay to take time for yourself. Only you can really decide those things for yourself. You know, I had a lot of people giving me input and advice and I was like, I'm just going to struggle and keep going. But I was so lucky because my cohort was small and everybody was so loving and caring. So I came back the next day. I didn't tell anyone anything really. Other than the people who, like, were like, oh my god, Krista, what's wrong? You left class, and now you're crying. And then I, like, sat down in class, and I, like, didn't really want to, like, talk. I just wanted to, like, go to class. And then everyone, like, came in and, like, sat around me and, like, hugged me. And I was like, oh my god, you guys are great. <laughs> I love you all. This is only, like, the first week of knowing each other, but you already are so supportive. This is wonderful. So I was really lucky, you know. I will say relationships were strained you know, friendships, the friendships you make in the first year are not necessarily going to be your friendships for the rest of grad school. I'm lucky that Megan, who I do my YouTube channel with, has been like my ride or die since like that first year. And I've had a couple other friends who also have been there for me, like through the thick of it, because I was a mess. Um, so I think what I've learned is that you will naturally find people who you relate to and you'll you'll find people who are your people and you will face many troubles and obstacles in grad school but it's really important to um, be honest with yourself and be honest with other people about what you're struggling with and how and I think it's really important to find an advisor who is nothing but supportive of you as well because I don't think I would have made it this far if it wasn't for Ken because I definitely didn't pass my first advancement exam, obviously, because it was like a year after my mom died and it was right after Mother's Day. Oh, boy. And it was really bad. Oh, boy. And like people told me, they're like, Krista, you can postpone it. You don't have to take it this year. Like you have extenuating circumstances. And I was like, no, I'm going to do it because I like don't know what else to do. I didn't pass. Right. They told me to come back the next year. I passed the next year, obviously. But so... Uh, life sucks and it's unpredictable and you will have terrible things happen to you. And when I did talk to one of the professors, 
I'll name drop him and you can take it out if you want to later. Um, Doug Tobias, he was teaching one of the classes and I came in because I was like, you know, I might not show up every day to class and this is why. And I'm like, sorry, but I'm trying. And he was like, it was really tough love. It was really good though. He said, you know, my dad died tragically in a plane accident unexpectedly. And it was terrible. It was one of the worst things that happened to me in my life at that point. And he's like, and your mom dying is probably the worst thing that's happened to you so far. But worse things will keep happening in your life. And this will not be the only tragic thing. And you have to learn to keep going. And I was like, oh my God. And he prefaced it with like, this might seem harsh, but I just want you to hear it. And then I did. And I didn't think it was harsh. I thought it was good. I don't think it's good to coddle people. I think it's good to be sensitive, but also realistic. So you can be kind and compassionate with honesty and truth as well. I think it's just how you deliver it. And I've also learned that as watching other students struggle, you know, because grad school sucks and everyone gets really depressed and anxious because grad school just kind of like grinds your soul away into dust and then it floats away. But studies have shown, right, there's a higher rate of depression and anxiety in graduate students for a reason. Three times as much, in fact. Yes. And, you know, it's important to be kind to each other because there is some culture that people will be, you know, like, oh, you came in, like, at 11 o'clock? Like, I've been here since, like, 7 a.m. Right? And it's, like, mind your own business. Like, my time schedule isn't affecting you whatsoever. And, like, the way you think my graduate school experience should be going, just because it doesn't match up with yours doesn't mean it's worse. Doesn't mean you're better. And I think it's important for people to realize that grad school guilt is unhealthy and you should just not, just don't listen to it. Don't feed into it. Like you do what you need to do, set small goals for your day and just get what you need to do done and like be a good human. And I don't think it's that hard, but unfortunately some people might make it harder. So it's an exercise every day. And I think those are some of the lessons that I've learned is how to be a good human and like not take things out on other people or not let other people taking things out on me affect me too personally. And that's my soapbox. I am sorry I went that way. Thanks, Ted. But that's, that's pretty intense. Yeah. No way I'm cutting that out. Are you sure? Because I was thinking about it. I was like, <laughs> this is like, I like, I don't tell. Like, it's not something you... There are two types of people, right, who mm-hmm. face trauma. There are people who broadcast their trauma. Yeah. Which is fine. Like, there's nothing wrong with that. And there's people who, like, hold on to their trauma. So I'm just someone who, like, holds on to my trauma. And then I, like, let it leak out a little bit sometimes. Yeah, that's, I think, my natural state as well. But uh, in recent times, I've kind of found that maybe there is some external benefit to broadcasting it. Not, I guess, I think when we say broadcast, we definitely don't mean... Uh, I would like to be pitied. Yeah. You're yeah. not broadcasting that message out. Just no. being open about yeah. what the hell just happened. Exactly. Um, I know, because I, like, yeah, I had to deal with depression. Yeah. Through yeah. grad school. Um, it was one of, you know, the, the defining moments of my life. I, I realized I had it and I dealt with it. Yeah. Yeah. And that was out of grad school. Best way that you can. Yeah. While in grad school, which is not. It's hard. Oh, yeah. Grad school's already hard enough, and then you realize you have this other stuff to deal with on top of all your other stuff you have to deal with. Yeah. 
on top of all the other extracurricular stuff you have to deal with. Yes. In my case, too. Um, yes. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, I've definitely... I can see the benefit to kind of broadcasting it a little bit. And I... Which is why I'm glad you shared this here Thanks, on this yeah. podcast. Because... Um, Sometimes it that may be enough to kick people in the pants to maybe hearing about it from someone else, hearing the troubles and yeah. being able to mirror it in some way kind of helps them kickstart whatever they need to go through Yeah. instead of being stuck. Because that was a conscious decision on my part. I knew my tendency is to just to get stuck yeah. if, I'm, if I'm, like, get depressed. Yeah. Right. Uh, and um, that was something I wanted to avoid. When I when I did that, um, which is why I was like very open about. Oh, I'm gonna go see my therapist now. Uh, yeah, you should. You know, you sh- in, yeah. I definitely had to, a lot of that that I had to do. Yeah, I'm like, like I have to go now. Yeah, and then kind of be like, where are you going? Like to my therapist, and thankfully he'd be like, oh, good. Yeah, you know, like you know, like that's good. I'm happy that you're doing. Like yeah, and then I would stop because I was like, I'm over it. Like this isn't. Helping, and I hate talking to people <laughs> about my feelings. And who thought this was a good idea in the first place? <laughs> yeah. Right? And then they're like, maybe you should be on medication. And you're like, Medic- you don't even, you're just guessing. You're just like picking a number out of a jar. I mean, like, let's try this one. And then it's dumb. I, uh, yes, I relate. Yeah. I relate. Yeah. And, you know, I've been listening to the, you know, for those days that I really couldn't get out of bed. Sometimes I would just listen to podcasts in bed. There's one, maybe you have heard of it, uh, Hilarious World of Depression. Why haven't I heard of it? It's so good. Um, And I think that might have been the most therapeutic for me, as opposed to, like, going to see, like, psychiatrists and psychologists. Which, if you don't know the difference, the psychiatrist is the MD who prescribes you the medication, and then the psychologist is the person who will do whatever talking... CV, whatever, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy you want to do. But, you know, just listening to this podcast was really good for me as someone who doesn't like to talk about my feelings and maybe also felt like I had no one to relate to at school about my feelings at the time. Because I think it was so early on, not everyone was, like, hit with that wall of, like, depression and anxiety yet. And no one, like, had lost their, you know, parent recently. A couple people did, but then they left the program. But... You know, so it was like, you feel alone and you don't really care because you're already alone and you're like, I'm going to die. Nothing matters. And But listening to this podcast, like, really, it showed me that when you never go and they're like, do you feel better? And you're like, well, what the hell does that mean? Like, I don't know what that, like, what am I supposed to feel like? Well, good, like, only a little better. But, you know, listening to these people talk about their experiences it helped me realize, like normalize what I was experiencing and maybe find a community of like, okay, like I understand what I'm going through better now as opposed to like, right, we're all trying to be like, I don't want to talk about it and I'm just going to suffer yeah. alone. But that makes me think now, this conversation, I wonder if perhaps that sort of feeling but that, that desire for us to, like, because that's something we share in common. Yeah. I, I would rather just, like, follow it. It's like a conscious effort for me to talk about all this stuff. Yes. Yeah. Because, um, again, because I do see the benefit of doing so. And I wonder now, 
if that's just a consequence of just this paralysis of fear. Maybe we don't know how to quite put all this into words because there's a lot of stuff going on. Mm-hmm. And those thinky processes of the brain that are responsible for putting things to words is, you know, saturated with all sorts of other fun feelings. Yes. And it's just not going to, it's not, it's not going to do its job. It's not, no, not happening, you know. And um, yeah. I wonder if part of that is due to a paralysis of that. There's just that lack of language. I think, you know. Yeah. I think for sure there is because people will be like, well, how are you feeling? Like, what do you need? And I, you just freeze up because you're trying to find the words or like a way to express it. And there's just no real effective, meaningful way to convey what you're feeling and do a way that's understandable to other people. Maybe like don't feel what you're feeling and have like no idea of, and then people have like bad advice, of course, but you know, you take it with a grain of salt. I always did because people are like, maybe you should exercise. Maybe you should do yoga. Maybe you should meditate. Maybe you just need a routine. Blah, yeah. blah, blah, blah. Eat healthy. And you're like, I understand you're coming from a place of good and good intentions. Right. But, you know. Misunderstanding the problem. Yes. Honestly. Yes. Yeah. Again, I think for a poverty of language, who coined that? There was a famous poet that coined that term. And I love it so much when it comes to pain. There's a poverty of language around it. Um, I'll have to put that in the podcast description. Excellent reason to visit the website. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, click on it. It's a really good looking website. Oh, thank you. Uh, um, Yeah, that's one of the cool things about the internet, I think. Uh, There's a lot of people out there and they've put a lot of words to a lot of things and then they've packaged it into like this digestible thing. You could just download it off the internet. It's it's fucking awesome. I don't know who you guys are, but I'm saluting you guys. You can't see this because it's a podcast, but I'm saluting. It's a thank you for both. Yeah. Um, Wow. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, no problem. Um, hmm. And I ask this question, not to be judgmental in any way, but because this is what I would fucking do. Yeah. Uh, Did you in some way take on all this stuff to kind of like, as a response to all the stuff that was going on because I would do that. Yeah. That's totally me. So I think that's maybe why I didn't take a break. Because I talked about it mm-hmm. extensively with my dad. Um, and he was like, you work so hard to get here. You can't let this foundation crumble. He's like, if you let this foundation crumble, like there will be nothing left for you. And I was like, but I'm sad and I want to lay down all day and my body feels heavy. And he's like, I know. But and I was like, mm, I'm going to lay down now. It was bad, though, because, like, I wasn't eating, and I lost a lot of weight, and my dad would get mad at me, and he'd be like, do you want to die? I have patients who are, like, losing weight and can't eat blah, 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 and I'd be like, why are you yelling at me? <laughs> like, I'm sorry. It was just oh, such man. a, it was, I was just such an almost a catatonic state of, like, just for, like, the first few months, right, because I just, like, didn't care. I was like, who cares? What's the meaning? Nothing. I'm, we're all going to die. I'm not afraid to die. Blah, 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 right? And so having classes, I think, helped because, like, I had to be somewhere at a certain time and, like, people expected to see me. Having appointments with people, one who care, who maybe wouldn't be as judgmental, was good. But also having to do things did kind of help. And I think that was why some people encouraged me to keep going in school and not take a break. Was to, like, if you stay busy, it's good. But then it got weird because... 
people were like, you're not dealing with your grief, which I know they were coming from a really loving place, but it was one of the most offensive things you can tell to someone who's Mm -hmm. grieving Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. how dare you, you know, it's, and if I sound like I'm getting upset, it's because I, it is an upsetting thing to say. Rightfully so. You know, and who are you to tell me how to grieve? You know, and this is like a side note, like that day I was walking back with the professor and it was the day my mom died and I was like walking and I was like, you know, it's funny. It's her birthday. Isn't that kind of a funny thing? And he looked at me, he's like, that's not funny. And then I told my dad that the same thing. He's like, how dare he tell you that? Like everybody has to grieve and you're processing. Like it's not right for him to tell you these things. And it's, it's not right for people to tell other people how to grieve and how to process. Like that's not your place. It is totally inappropriate. So please don't ever tell anyone how they should cope with things. Unless it's like they're alcoholics and they're abusing drugs and like, yeah, maybe you should stop them. But that's Mm -hmm. like the only time in case where I think it's okay to tell people like, that's not okay. We do have professionals for that though. Yeah, we have have professionals. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not, it's your place to be supportive. It is your place to hopefully provide gentle guiding words and just to listen and maybe just to sit and be quiet with people if like they just want to be quiet and if they don't want to sit with you you have to be accepting of that too you have to be accepting that people want to be alone and so there will be times when I was like yeah I need to be with people or like yeah I need someone to be here with me but there are also times where I was like, I really can't do anything. And then there were times where I was like, yeah, I need to just keep doing things. And if I just keep doing things, I won't think about it. I mean, I'm still sad about it. Like that sadness will never leave you. And it's only been almost four years now. And so it's like, I look back on the four years and I'm like, how much of that was just me trying to keep busy to not think about it? And like some of that probably is true. But also, I'm in grad school, and I need to function. People need to function, right? Like, just because your world stops doesn't mean the rest of the world does. It doesn't mean people are going to remember, like, yeah, your mom died, and you're sad. People don't care, like, oh, you're depressed, and you have anxiety. Like, oh, like, just, yeah. You know, people, you will meet strangers, and you'll meet people in your professional life, and they're not going to remember these things. It's not their world, right? That's in your world. And so... For some semblance of normalcy and thickening of the skin, yeah, you do need to just, like, keep going sometimes in my case. I did. Because I knew people lose understanding and patience over time. Like, the farther away you are from the trauma or from the diagnosis or anything, people become forgetful. And honestly, like, I can't really blame them because people are self-centered, right? We're all in our own worlds. And it's not, I'm not trying to say that they're not, kind and they're not compassionate and they're not understanding and empathetic but I think it's not healthy to be like I'm a victim and to constantly like wear that on your sleeve as like I'm the victim and everyone should be nice to me because I'm sad and my mom died right I didn't want to be that person I wanted to be the awesome grad student that crushed it and published papers and did a good job and like made my PI proud and I think I'm getting there And so I think it's more a matter of like, what do you need? What is good for you? And that's what's most important. Like, I hope no one 
things that I'm trying to tell them what's best for them. I hope people understand, like, this was what was good for me and this is what I experienced. And it's very separate from what other people are feeling and experiencing. Although there might be some overlap to feelings, it's not my place to say what's good for you. It's up to you to really dig down deep and figure that out. And it took me time to dig down and figure that out. And it will take years, potentially. And I think it's okay to be patient. Like, you're not going to wake up one day and realize what you need. You'll figure it out over time. And it will change from day to day. And it will never... Maybe what you need one day is not what you need the next day. And that's okay. There's a fluidity to feelings and emotions and our thoughts as humans. And I hope that doesn't get lost in the need to function in a society that doesn't necessarily support that very well. I hope that makes sense. But yeah, one of my friends, Megan, she's pretty awesome. She's really been there for me, even when I was being pretty poopy. And even though there were some times where I was like mad at her for trying to push me to do things and like in ways that maybe I didn't think was good. She was, I just was like, she loves me, and she just wants what's best. She just wants me to be happy, whatever that means, you know? And so she's been my friend for all through grad school, like, consistently. And it's been really nice. And we now we have a YouTube channel. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, so it's called... I say that surprised, like, I don't know what it's about. <laughs> yes, but that... <laughs> I know what it's about, because, you know, I Ted's been really nice, and he's given us really good advice on, like, sound well, and audio stuff. And we've, like, tried to incorporate a lot of that with our very minimal low budget red um, red life for you oh man yeah. yeah yeah so on top yeah it's funny because even though there's a lot of stuff to do we try to squeeze in this little youtube channel called explained by nerds obviously we are the nerds and we are Couldn't explaining. Tell. oh are you sure <laughs> <laughs> we're trying to explain things and I love Megan because she is also really into science communication. She's a really good public speaker. She's won, like, Grad Slam at UCI and, like, went oh. all the way to, like, the finals and stuff. Oh. So she's, like, fan- she, like, normally, like, wins whatever speaking competition she's in. Cause she's That's just, fairly she's, prestigious. Yeah, she's amazing. Um, to explain what Grad Slam is. Oh, uh, yeah. There's a international, not, not international, there's an inter-UC system contest for people to give, like, short two-minute things about their research. Uh, and you know, you first there's like a school wide competition, and then they you get sent off to compete amongst people in the other UC. So the entire UC system, she had an excellent description of her work that was compelling, told a great story, and it captured the science. That's what that means. It's pretty. It's pretty cool. Yeah, it was fun to. I was like watching the live stream of mm-hmm. when she went to the finals, and I was like, "Oh, you're so good. I'm so proud of you." So that was cool that she made it there. I was proud of her, but uh. So she's also really into science communication, and I think what, like, spurred us to do it is that we've just realized, you know, in the current climate of America today, um, and I think everyone knows where I'm going with this, uh, people don't necessarily believe in scientists' work as much as they should. Uh, like with the whole like anti-vaccination thing um and you know that's become a real big problem right like the measles outbreak literally undoing decades of work yeah and it's really frustrating as you know as you know because we're scientists and we know how much work it takes to 
publish something and to prove it and to just see people disregard it. Right, and never mind the actual legwork of getting rid of a disease altogether. Yeah, like this celebrity said this, so it must be right. And the internet said this, so it must be correct. And like none of that is checked. None of that is, you know, there's no checks and balances with that. And so we got upset and we're like, we gotta stop this in like whatever capacity that we could. And so we dropped, we dreamed big and we're like, let's talk about vaccines. And then we realized like no one would want to watch our YouTube channel if we started off really big. So we decided to start small with little issues. Um, maybe one day if we're popular enough, people will want to listen to us talk about vaccines. But yeah, we've started off with like fads, almost like health fads, because we think that's kind of silly that people believe all these things without looking through like the actual scientific evidence. Um, and so this is like our way to try and maybe mitigate some of the negative press scientists get and maybe put some good science facts out there in an easily digestible, easily understandable, also graphical, humorous way so that we're just doing what we can to help make the world okay again you know because right now it's pretty bad in some ways final parting question because we are running uh sparse on the time yes uh this is something i like to ask everybody what is your go-to food when you gotta stress eat oh man so uh i'm a stress not eater Mm. uh (laughs) so (laughs) when i get really stressed i don't have much of an appetite or I just don't eat because I'm so busy. Um, so that's really terrible. Uh, don't be like me. Please nourish your body when you need to. Um, if I, I guess if I were to stress eat, though, I'd probably want to eat something healthy. Because I'd be feeling like poop, you know, emotionally and mentally. And so maybe in my mind I'd be like, oh, if I eat something healthy, I'll feel better. Or I'll at least not feel worse about myself for eating something bad. Plus, I just like healthy food. I think it tastes good. It was wonderful chatting with you. Yeah, thanks for having me. This Thank you. Delightful. I'm glad you think so. Thanks for sharing yeah. everything. Yeah. As well. Thanks for listening and talking to me. <laughs>